All right, cool. I'm going to give us a sync. All right. What's up? <laughs> what's up? Uh, we're here with Nikhil Chowdhury. And uh, we're going to chat about a bunch of stuff. There's almost too much to talk about within the span that we have. Uh, but I think we're going we're gonna to start it off first because of, of what Nikhil's worked on. Um, why, don't you, why don't you tell us what cooperation is? Sure. Um, well, I'll first start by saying... <laughs> People, so many social scientists are interested, and biologists and zoologists are interested in this problem of cooperation. And they define it differently, as you might expect, which causes all sorts of problems in the field. Because people are sort of approaching the problem from a similar starting point, yet using the word differently. It's certainly the way I use it does not correspond to the colloquial use. I'd say the colloquial use of cooperation is working together for some shared goal. I think if you ask someone in the general public what they mean by cooperation, they mean sort of working together to achieve something. Now, from sort of biological, ethological perspective, I probably would call that collaboration, um, maybe mutualism, depending on if they're the same species. And cooperation... The definition I give is the one based on, well, what is the fundamental puzzle here? So I would call, I would refer to cooperation in the way that lots of people refer to altruism, which is any behavior where at that point in time, at least, I'm incurring some sort of cost to myself to provide a benefit to some recipient. Then I am cooperating with them. I'm doing, and the currency, as an evolutionary scientist, the currency is fitness, you know, the replication of genes in future generations. So I'm incurring a cost to my direct fitness to provide a benefit to the fitness of someone else. And then this is a puzzle, right? How, how could such behavior evolve if, by definition, you're reducing your own fitness and increasing the fitness of someone else? So is it that uh, collaboration is for a particular goal in a given moment, but cooperation is sort of this broader long-term mitigator of uncertainty for both of us? I think it's more that collaboration, the reason I don't find that as puzzling and evolutionary scientists wouldn't find it as puzzling is that they're using or I'm using that word to refer to working together to achieve something, right? And we're both going to benefit from it. So mm -hmm. there's no real puzzle there. We but. But if it's me, actually, you could almost see, you know, with altruism, we're talking about me incurring a cost to provide a benefit to you. That's when there's really a puzzle, right? And I'm using cooperation synonymously with altruism. Because if we're all in a, in a population, us three, and let's trivialize it, I have the gene which makes me um, cooperative, me and you, have a gene which makes us cooperative i.e we're willing to incur costs to provide benefits to others and you happen to have a gene which makes you selfish then by definition by our definition of cooperation which means incurring fitness costs to provide benefits to others your fitness is going to end up being higher than ours so in the next generation there should be you've left relatively more descendants than us so cooperative behavior should go extinct. This is the puzzle. It's effectively some form of sort of self-sacrifice to provide a benefit to another. So you're talking about a, a pushback between this sort of like selfish gene concept 
uh, that's put forward by, by Dawkins. Yeah, well, the selfish gene concept is a way of reconciling this, right? Because yeah. it's at the individual level, Yes. by definition, yes, I'm incurring a cost, but at the gene level, my genes are gaining a net benefit if yeah. I cooperate with people who share those genes. Yeah, right. And so this is sort of like a almost an existential collaboration. You have something where I'm incurring a cost, you're benefiting, hmm. but ostensibly your whatever benefits you also benefits me in the long run. Maybe I incur a cost in the immediate sense, but I have some kind of long run gain, or maybe that's the assumption of why it's difficult to reconcile, is because it seems like that's a, a good strategy. Uh, evolution tells us it seems to be, even if on the immediate sense, it's not immediately apparent. Yeah, that's that's also, but I have a question re regarding that, because um, there are out there um, different explanations for yeah. what we call altruism, right? What seems to me is that you're using uh, cooperation as, uh, as synonymous to real altruism, which yeah. would be different than reciprocal altruism or other kind of theories like oh, long, long run um, benefits or any kind of, actually, any other kind of exchange theory. I am, I'm actually using the word cooperation. I think the, possibly the, best way to think about it is I'm using the unit that I'm describing as the behavior in that moment, right? So I'm going to call a behavior cooperative. I'm going to look at a given behavioral event mm -hmm. and am I incurring a cost at that point in time via that event for you to gain a benefit? And that need not be true altruism because reciprocal altruism, when I get that back, it's still satisfying my criteria so yeah. that's a that's one of the ways in which it's not true altruism but it is appears altruistic at that point in time we're almost saying why is altruism not true altruism but then you could say kin selection which i'm sure you're familiar with mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. true altruism i see i see <laughs> it's like a global local temporal yeah in a temporal yeah. sense yeah so yeah. it can be resolved temporally yes. so and that was sort of i think what you were hinting at that yes. in the long run but even if it's never reciprocated then you've got the selfish gene kin selection if i yes i don't know if you're familiar with hamilton's rule yep. um, yeah then then it doesn't need to be resolved it's not a long one resolution resolution it's simply if if you share my genes and i cooperate with you if the net benefit to you discounted by the degree of genetic relatedness is greater than the cost to me, there's been a net benefit to my genes, even though there's been a cost to me as an individual. Mm -hmm. Regarding exchange theories, so in the same token, what do you think about something that is a I think I find a little bit more um, controversial, and it, because it is, I believe, uh, group selection. Hmm. So what, what's, what are your thoughts about ideas out there of, of um, you know, alarm calls and primates. And um, do you think there is selection on group level that would lead to behaviors that can be described at, at the specific moment of that behavior occurs as altruistic? So group selection, it's funny you mentioned alarm calls because actually I think one of the first ways in which kin selection was validated was through alarm calls. You know, one of the first mm -hmm. ever studies was looking at ground squirrels mm -hmm. and finding that actually when you look at when they do the alarm calls, it tends to be when their close relatives are around and when other members of the group are around, they're less likely to do the alarm calls. 
But in general, group selection, I know there was this whole debate probably five to ten years ago where mm -hmm. there was a resurgence because of um, Sigmund Nowak. Um, he had done all this complicated mathematics and he was suggesting that group selection is a real phenomenon and that actually kin selection has been overused as an explanation for understanding cooperation in the animal kingdom. And then there was this reply. This all happened in nature. And there was this reply of, I don't know, a hundred different evolutionary scientists who all signed this paper saying kin selection is amazing, group selection is rubbish or whatever. And I've never delved in the maths enough. I think group selection is just one of these things where theoretically, under the right conditions, genetic group selection can happen, but those conditions are unlikely to ever be met. So the problem with group selection, traditionally the problem is um, that as soon as you have a selfish individual in a group, that the within-group competition will supersede the between-group competition and the selfish individual within the group has a benefit. So then, uh, you know, mm -hmm. altruism couldn't evolve by group selection. That's the problem. If you have any sort of migration or mutation which introduces variation within a group, then within-group competition will supersede between-group competition. For competition to happen, you need stable differences between units. So you can't have stable, unless you have stable differences between groups, you couldn't have selection happening at the group level. And you can't have stable differences between groups because you have mutation mm -hmm. or migration. Now, it's possible that if you had extremely large amounts of between group competition, that actually, if that was really, really pronounced and there was not so much within group variation, you could theoretically, like mathematically, have a scenario where between group competition could supersede within group competition. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that ever really happens with genetics because you've got migration and gene flow. But with culture, mm -hmm. I'm sure you know, I, I do buy into cultural group selection mm -hmm. because migration doesn't erode uh, between group differences. When you enter another group, yeah, your genes don't change, but you can assimilate into the culture. And if you don't, you're going to get punished if you don't follow the social norms. So then you can have stable differences between groups. And then if you've got those, you can have selection at the group level for different cultural repertoires. And those groups which have cultures, which promote patriotism, sacrifice for the good of the group, um, those are the groups which do well and those cultural traits. I mean, if you look around within groups, it's always about doing mm -hmm. for the good of the group, maybe having hostility towards other groups, um, patriotism, self-sacrifice. These are all cultural virtues that seem to have done very well for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, does that answer Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, you, you just, uh, you could just come to my mind um, that what actually for, for culture, uh, he shared and Boyd would actually said that these conditions, this very specific kind of conditions existed and that's why you're so yes. special to, to well, develop. And with culture, the reason it works, so again, just to recap, with genetics, with, for group selection to occur, you need 
between group competition to be really pronounced to supersede mm. within group competition. And there was actually a really cool paper where they tried to quantify the level of variation and between group difference in pairs of populations, both at the gene level and the cultural level. So, of course, for the genetic data, that's obvious. You just get the genetics from two groups and calculate like an FST value, which is quantifying the amount of genetic difference. And then for culture, what they did was they looked at the World Value Survey, which is the survey where you ask all these sort of questions like, what do you think about abortion? So it was sort of about values, obviously, World Value Survey. And then they computed FSD differences, so between group differences in culture. And what they showed basically is, you know, you've got so much more variation between groups in culture than you do in genes that that allows for the possibility of selection at the cultural level because it's much more easy to supersede within group competition because mm-hmm. there's much more variation in culture between groups than within groups mm-hmm. whereas with genes it's the opposite the vast majority of genetic variation can be found within groups um yeah so yeah and i suppose it's one of the important mechanisms for the adaptability of a species is that you have the ability to move between groups as your group becomes devalued the entire group doesn't go extinct they can actually separate out, find different groups, assimilate in. And if there is a huge difference um, between groups genetically, then you're going to have either speciation hmm. um, and one group might die off, one group might survive. They might both survive and eventually become genetically even more different. Sure. Um, but, you know, with with it's kind of um, made irrelevant when you come to humans because of how many of us there are, how we've sort of uh, transcended this food chain where you can get this great degree of polarization between groups where the group differences are so large that it's almost it's very difficult to move between ideological groups but it can be really easy to move into a new say genetic group if the um if the cultural differences aren't too vast yes yeah it's almost like that's a we've created this phenomenon which might be novel probably is in the animal kingdom where our cultures can be so vastly different that even if you're ostracized from your group um, you might look to the opposing group or you might look to an entirely new one Uh, or it might be that you find no groups to attach yourself to and then you kind of go on this whole radical binge Hmm. uh, which we see a lot especially in today's you know uh, and Maybe the group is something like a radical fringe that you find online because it's so niche. But yeah. it's a strange sort of phenomenon that ends up happening. Yeah, I think traditionally, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on now and radical stuff. And, you know, everyone's also obsessed with finding their passion, etc. And these aren't bad things. But it's a consequence of the fact that of affluence, really, when you, when your basic needs aren't being met, you really need to be in a group and therefore you're willing to assimilate culturally. And it's only when you've got real affluence and you're able to be independent that you're sort of willing to rebel against the social norms because you you feel this sense of you're, you're able to do so. When you were speaking about that and the sort of uniqueness of cultural variation in humans compared to other species, it made me think and migration and movement between it made me think of 
this one paper we did, and, and, and it was a similar narrative to some experimental work, which was talking about trying to understand why human culture in terms of our knowledge, skills, and technologies is so, so elaborate compared to other species. So I don't know if you're aware of this concept of cumulative culture, which is basically that, yes, um, you know, unlike in other species, we transmit information and build technologies and knowledge bases which are beyond what one individual could ever build themselves. And the reason social structure has probably played a really important role in that because of the amount of migration between groups, then there's more sharing of ideas. But what's not so intuitive is initially the narrative was just, oh, well, we have so much migration between groups and we can look back in the past and map out population densities, how much movement there was between groups. And you see these cultural explosions in the archaeological record, which happened when you had the right demographic conditions that people were moving around enough and subgroups were exchanging information and recombining information in novel ways. But what's quite cool is you actually, what's ideal is not this sense of as much movement of ideas or as much mobility and exchange of ideas is better. Sometimes less is more. What you actually want is what we call partial connectivity. So this experiment that they did basically involved, I won't go into the details of it because it's quite hard to explain, but what they found, they had two conditions and you've got a bunch of people separated into groups say into pairs and they're trying to solve some problem and this problem has multiple solutions um, and the top the best solution you can get involves having combining two of the earlier solutions which aren't quite as good and when you have a system where there's full connectivity so everyone has a go in their pairs at, at solving this problem and has different results and then in the next generation in the next round everyone moves to a different group so everyone's sharing ideas constantly each round ideas are moving you do get to a good solution quickly because someone finds something good and then they move and they share it and then they move and they're both sharing it so you've got this exponential rapid shift towards this good solution but when you have partial connectivity where you stay in your pairs for five rounds and then you move then you get better outcomes because you don't get stuck in one trajectory when you've got full connectivity as soon as someone gets a good solution and shares it really rapidly everyone's like okay that's the way and you get stuck in this one path and yeah you get rapid cultural adaptation and solution but when you've got partial connectivity people are working out different things and they can follow different trajectories and in the way they set up this experiment where the ideal solution involved combining solutions which were on slightly different trajectories, then that partial connectivity is ideal. And in hunter-gatherer societies, you really do have partial connectivity because you're staying with your group, you're staying in your camp, but then every so often a family will move to another camp. So you're interacting with the same people for a few weeks and then you move to another camp and share some information. But it's not like information is constantly moving every day. 
people are doing their own thing and then moving and sharing ideas at this sort of gradual rate. How, yeah. That sort of, uh, it's an interesting thing that happens, I guess, within academia as well, where yeah. you get certain labs stagnating because you have a, um, a, persona, a persona at the top sort yeah. of uh, running it for a long time, but people move between laboratories and yeah. as a whole science progresses because yeah. there are so many different laboratories doing interesting things. Yes. But if you have one person and they dominate the the narrative, the scientific narrative within domain, yeah. you're kind of going to get stuck for a while. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, that's so well recognized now in science, but actually <laughs> implementing the the ideal structure and interdisciplinarity and movement of ideas at the right rate is so so difficult to achieve. But most of the universities do avoiding uh, uh, research in breeding, right? So is that um, bad for science? They're avoiding it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but now the, you know, if you apply for a grant, you've got a much better chance if you show that it's interdisciplinary and you've got people from very different departments working on it. Mm -hmm. So I think there is an encouragement towards to, towards this no, in breeding, what, I, what I meant is, is that uh, you universities would avoid uh, uh, PhDs um, becoming post PhDs in the same um, department or lab, and right? Yes, becoming professors, so they, they should be. Oh yeah, moving course, around, right? of course, right? It, they're avoiding sort of intra-breeding and and uh, yeah, uh, of course, yeah, that's a good thing. A good thing, I think. But we, then we are missing out on, on people uh, working on the same problem uh, within the same uh, partial connections for a longer period, right? Oh, for well, I guess it depends what what period is yeah. partial connectivity. I mm -hmm. don't know what that optimal amount mm -hmm. of spending uh, time, but I think the reality is right now we're in a situation where there's too much <clears throat> isolation. So any of that mobility mm -hmm. is good but eventually you would get to a point where maybe mm -hmm. there's too much. Uh, and what do you think of the migration of ideas within the environment of today's internet? So is that like, is this too much migration of ideas? Or it's actually, it happens on, on a kind of the same scenario of partial connectivity at some degree and to which degree? Yeah, I don't know, I mean, Whenever I just think about the internet now, I just feel so disillusioned when thinking about the information space. I mean, I haven't been thinking about it with respect to, we've just got full connectivity and just in this mess of not even solving problems. And we don't even have the first step. So with partial connectivity, when it works really well, it's when people are incrementally working out what works and what doesn't work and then they change and we don't even have that basic first step of knowing what works and what's true and what's not true so that whole process of sort of cumulative transition of ideas at least when it comes to to things like politics or mm. solutions to health problems is has got worse because you don't even have that base layer of knowing whether you're in the right direction or not. We have no idea what's true or, or not. And they're, they're often about long-term things like whether celery juice does cure cancer, you know. <laughs> you're, you're not even in a place to really, to say and then share the idea. But mm. I don't think it does cure cancer. <laughs> but yeah, I guess that gets to um, 
a really important point, which is that humans seem to be able to adapt to any type of context. And the internet is such a different yeah. type of context than we've ever seen before. And uh, this was briefly mentioned when we were chatting yesterday, but the that sort of the phenotypic plasticity um, seems to be one of the core uh, advantages that that humans seem to have. It seems to be our our core evolutionary advantage, and it's a conversation that I end up getting into a lot these days with things like ChatGPT. Is you know a lot of people uh, like to think of art as this marker of humanity. You know, what humans can do that other species cannot. But it seems like because GPT can can so remarkably copy um, poetry from, from specific artists, images from particular artists, it, seem, it seems like the, the core thing that you can tell, um, the core metric you can use to tell whether or not a human touched something is the ability, uh, the degree of adaptability within within a certain capacity. So uh, GPT is good at doing the things GPT is good at, but human beings can rapidly adapt to any type of context. And it seems like the the ability to adapt is much more human than the ability to make art, the ability to do science. It seems like that the ability to say, okay, how, what do I need to do to match the context? The ability to identify a question, act on the question, seems to be a fundamental human trait. Uh, and maybe this uh, is sort of a, a social way of thinking about the the type of plasticity that we talk about at the at the phenotypic level. Yeah, yeah. the 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 emphasis people put on art and this is I've always found these sort of things a bit circular. It's sort of like, well, we value art as humans, and then we sort of say, what makes us special as humans? is that we value art. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, the things that we're going to say is special about our species are going to be the things that we as a species value. I mean, there's, I've always found that very strange. Um, <laughs> the adaptability and the, the cultural adaptability, though, is, is certainly that thing. Because you see phenotypic plasticity in loads of species, right? You get so many species which can have like epigenetic responses to local environmental variation. Now, you, because we've been a, in colonized a much broader set of environments, there might be more plastic responses, but it's really the, the mechanism is that we, we've got the flexible... Um, responses through culture and through information um, which I think is what you were getting at when you said culture and then phenotypic plasticity because our phenotypic plasticity is often mediated by culture rather than like epigenetic processes and I always say to my students when I'm introducing cultural evolution we can do it now um, I show them a heat map of this one taxa and it's ants because I really like ants and they're all over the place and you just see that ants are basically everywhere except the arctic and then i asked them how many species of ants are you and if you look if you map it if you look at the heat maps there's some you know human heat maps sort of similar they're everywhere and we're in the arctic too in terms of the terrestrial globe but how many species do you think there are of ant have a guess i would say um something around twenty thousand. Amazing. The estimates are about 22,000. We haven't found them all, but there's some way of estimating. Okay. Um, and then we've colonized this, the same places as one species. And it's, 
the the phenotypic plasticity and rapid adaptation is so cultural you know we are still one species it's not so much biological plasticity as cultural plasticity um i can't actually remember the question we started with that yeah yeah, yeah no i mean that's quite phenomenal because you get you get um much less complex forms of biological life that are able to adapt to their environments really rapidly um but you have humans at at the very far end of of sort of biological complexity uh especially something like the the human nervous system uh but then you have this uh the nervous system creating something abstract uh as sort of a a system that it operates under um which is culture that can then extend its capacity beyond yeah. just the genetic limits yes that's it right the often when we're thinking about adaptability and sometimes i think human behavioral ecologists so within the evolutionary social scientists human behavioral ecologists the premise is an adaptationist stance which means we basically assume there are no constraints on adaptability and yes we have culture um but there are still constraints especially when you get a rapid change in environmental shift it takes a while for culture to adapt as well but i completely agree with what you're saying with biological adaptation you've got phylogenetic constraints so if a species is exposed to some new environmental challenge which is really novel and if you look phylogenetically across all all its you know relatively close relatives and their shared common ancestors this problem hasn't been there all of that genetic architecture that's been built up has not been designed to deal with this new problem and as we mentioned yesterday i can't remember what we were discussing natural selection builds on what's already there so phylogenetic constraints are a real phenomenon when it comes to biology especially if you have a really new environmental problem which you don't have the the genetic architecture for already but then with culture the constraints are just not there there is no real constraint yeah especially with with humans where our our breeding time is so much longer than our like cultural breeding time yeah cultures can shift so fast based yeah. on what we need but uh it takes a very long time to get a genetic shift but a cultural shift uh you could say almost happens every generation you have subgenerational yeah. uh cultural shifts so with genes you know the tradition you talk about vertical transmission its parents to offspring mm-hmm. and then with culture you've got vertical transmission but it can be bidirectional and it can be weighted maybe i learn from more from my dad than mum then you got a bleak transition i learn from the generation above but it's my teachers not just my parents and then of course you've got horizontal transmission within generations and as you say so you can have within generation cultural change and yes that allows for rapid adaptation but it also allows for maladaptation right because mm. vertical transmission like with genes if there's a genetic trait which reduces reproductive success it reduces the chance of survival or reproduction then via vertical transmission by definition almost under the conditions i just gave that genetic trait is going to reduce in frequency that i mean that's what natural selection is if you've got heritability vertical heritability and competition and you've got something that reduces fitness it's going to lower in frequency if smoking was purely genetically determined it would be extinct but it can be it's transmitted culturally and is often transmitted horizontally so actually whilst culture can change so quickly and isn't just transmitted vertically 
that allows for much faster adaptability and change. But equally, it allows for the persistence of maladaptive and even pathological behaviors too. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're pros and cons of it when you're thinking it. We can respond really quickly, but we wouldn't be smoking if if, uh, if that was genetically determined. Yeah, and I suppose you have this interesting thing where the genes you inherit are the genes you inherit. But um, the culture you inherit, you can deviate from massively yeah. um, for, for better or for worse. But then also you can get this thing where uh, offspring can impact the culture that parents maintain. Yeah. And I think you, you end up seeing this a lot, which is also really interesting because you can have children, they can change your worldview, and then you can be going about your world also impacting other people's worldview. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, a I guess, sort of a very novel thing that maybe uh, just very cultural animals will do and humans sort of excel at. Yeah. You can yeah. change your mind over time. Uh, and yeah, sure, there, there's some degree of uh, adaptability as opposed to your uh, epigenetics through your lifetime. There's some kind of agent-centric phenotypic change, but uh, the cultural variation is huge. Yeah, yeah. And the, it's funny you mentioned like the reverse and changing your parents' minds of something. I mean, that we're all experiencing such a change in the zeitgeist and the moral values and... Uh, Maybe I'm just at that age now. You know, every every generation, there's the tension that happens with the the new moral values that emerge, and suddenly all twenty year olds think their parents are super backward and conservative, and all the parents think their child is just going through a phase, which they often are just going through a phase, or sometimes the cultural norms stick. But that's happening so profoundly now, and it's such a drastic shift. I've noticed seeing a lot of my colleagues who are older, seeing it's such a powerful shift that's going on in the zeitgeist and in culture, particularly around morality, seeing this interesting trend of having seen them have discussions with their kids and they're almost subordinated by their kids and they're sort of, except they're being deferent towards their children and saying, yeah, they're they're taking on their values, partly because we're also in, in a situation now where values are the consequences of not adhering to certain people's values are really severe and there's a culture of fear around this too. Um, But it's interesting to see this happen where you're seeing parents being subordinate to their children when it comes to their morality because I I don't know how much that's happened before. Yeah, that's a super interesting topic. I I think I would deviate from that with what I had in mind. Because we have been talking about uh, uh, phenotypic plasticity, and I think something well, the culture is part of is is a phenomenon of niche construction, right? So we are mm. not only we do not only have this band of adaptability on, on our behavior that can go um, well in a certain spectrum within the environment, but we are also shaping the environment yeah. around us, and that kind of constraint. Uh, what we are bringing on on, on our genes, or mm. like the things that we we have inherited uh, genetically, but also um, gives our uh, our phenotypic plasticity some 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 things to work with, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think niche construction is such um, an interesting way to look at how humans, um, um, well, the way that we we build our society and how that in turn changed the way that we behave hmm. in general. And um, well, I see broadly culture as part 
of niche construction, but um, there are very interesting things that we do, right? In terms of, of shaping our environment that it's nothing akin of ants building uh, an ant mound or anything like that. Like we are fundamentally yeah. changing uh, ourselves biologically um, all the time. That's super crazy. I think it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thought, but it has so much potential of explaining some of the, the, the behaviors that we find puzzling. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that, even outside of culture, isn't that always going on just, you know, I will say when introducing sociality on one of my courses, I think usually the prime mover towards a species becoming social is predation. So the sociality is the response to um, this selection pressure. And then as soon as you've got sociality, that becomes one of the most fundamental selection pressures of all because then you've got within group competition and all these different social adaptations are happening rapidly. Um, I've always found niche construction. I, I don't know the idea very well. I mean, I know I should because it's a really famous idea. I was speaking with my friend the other day and we were talking about a book that should be written about certain words which are used and sometimes no one really knows what they mean or people are using them in very different ways. Cooperation was one of them. <laughs> niche was one of them. Mm. She's got a paper coming out on something to do with niches. And then even though she's now an expert in it, she keeps asking me, what is a niche? And I'm like, I don't really know. And, and I think people are using that word in quite different ways. Fitness was one mm. as well. Sometimes when I talk to geneticists, I thought fitness was a really basic concept, but we're, we're seemingly on different wavelengths about that. But um, yeah, so niche construction theory, I mean, are you basically, when you're talking about culture, you're just saying that our, we're using our culture in a way that ends up having profound effects on the selection pressures we're exposed to. Yeah, for sure. And it's really a shit with this like gene culture co-evolution. It's such a cool thing. And I think you're so right. It's so, so important. And when we try and think of really well-established examples of this, which have been quantified, where we can really show the evidence for it, it's always the same thing, lactase persistence. Yeah. It's always, oh, well, if you look at genes which allow for lactase persistence, it maps onto the cultural trait of how long a population has been dairying for or, or whatever. And it would just be really lovely to have some more well-studied quantitative examples of gene culture co-evolution, which are really well-established and clear. Here's the evidence. Because obviously, like you say, it's huge. It's mm -hmm. such an important force. I've got a... One of the master students in my department right now is looking at alcohol metabolism in some East Asian populations because mm -hmm. they metabolize alcohol differently and whether you can predict this based on, uh, and the genes related to it, whether you can trace them back to the uh, onset of rice you, of rice farmers starting to, to make their own alcohol. Um, and that will make for a really nice gene culture co-evolution example if, if it works out well. Mm -hmm. So one of the, Go ahead. one of the, um, I, I work with identity a lot, just how identity emerges, what its function might be. And I think okay. I deal with um, how identity might just be um, a means of building a socio-ecological niche to sort of fit in for, uh, to serve that role of within group competition. So increasing your fitness, another term, <laughs> increasing your fitness within the, within your group is building out um, an identity that is somehow distinct. There is something that I provide to the group 
And once that's threatened, then my uh, position within the group is threatened. That can increase my anxiety about belonging. I, I, this threat of ostracism is sort of ever-present. And so the, the desire to project something into the social world is uh, what I, I try to maintain that concept in, in my mind, but also in the minds of others. So I, I'm sort of managing my reputation. So this, the, this socio-ecological niche is, you know, not just how I uh, navigate my social environment, but what my social environment is nested in. So maybe what I can provide to the group from outside of the group. Uh, yeah, what do, you, what do you think about that? Well, it was funny when you first started saying that and before you said about being distinct, I immediately was thinking, yeah, identity to about feeling merged with the group and being at one with the group. And then you said distinct. And I, it's sort of happening on two levels, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think with any group, you need to feel like you're part of a group, i.e. you're all the same, that at this level of analysis, you're all the same and you truly do belong. And equally, to feel that, to some degree, you need to feel valued in the group for which you need to be distinct from other people in the group and offer something different. And there's this, yeah, it's sort of simultaneously you want to be the same but different at this lower level. Um, and, uh, but yes, my immediate reaction is I always think of identity as largely constructed with the first thing that comes to mind is belonging. But maybe you can repeat what you're saying and what you're thinking about being distinct and offering value and how that plays into yeah inside. with belong belonging is an interesting idea uh i i tend to see group as more uh affiliation based so i'm i don't belong in a group or i'm not in a group um but i comprise the group i'm, I'm one one component in it so i see it as a an affiliation in that uh i can even say that you two are part of the same group, but you two might not believe you're part of the same group. Um, this thing happened, I think a, a classic example is something like um, uh, Maoists and Marxists, you know, Maoists and Leninists, mm -hmm. who maybe from the outside, they might people might be like, oh, these are part of the same group. They're, they're both fundamentally mm -hmm. communists or something. But, uh, you know, they might, if they see each other on the street, they might try to kill each other. You know, yeah. you get, so you get uh, groups or something where a third party can also attribute something like a affiliation between two people. But it really depends on whether those two people feel as though they're affiliated. Yeah. In the same sense, um, you two can form a group and I can think that I'm part of it, but you two might not think that I'm part of it. So there's this sort of interesting thing where, uh, yeah, I might um, want to belong, but I don't think that I ever want to belong to a particular group. I just want to belong to groups. And then whatever groups sort of fit the rest of that niche, that socio niche that I've built are the groups that I'm going to try to affiliate with. So if I get ostracized from one group, I'm not going to join the rat, typically not the radically different group. I might join some kind of adjacent group mm -hmm. that still fits in with the rest of my identity. So I don't have to fit, you know, change all of my groups and map myself onto a different person. Yeah. Um, but there is a sort of s sets of groups that I feel are not incongruent with one another. And so I, I affiliate with those. And my affiliation might change based on what the needs of, of myself, you know, my maintenance of my group affiliations might change. So my affiliation with one group might necessitate that I distance myself from another group or might necessitate that I uh, also affiliate with an, with an adjacent group. Yeah, when you were saying that, I mean, two things that came to my mind. One was this 
I totally agree that goes on. But this is, a, again, a relatively novel phenomenon of even having choice over group membership, especially if you're living in a small community. Yes, there's often structuring within the community, but it's sort of like this is your group and you don't have often you don't have the same level of control over who you're affiliating with. Of course, in large-scale societies like us and their market market integrated, then you've really got these options and you've got lots of groups emerging. But I was also thinking, actually, often leaving a group, either because you've been ostracized or so you've either been pushed out of the group and rejected or you voluntarily want to leave the group for whatever reason, I think that can often come with actually not going for an adjacent type of group. Like I think about a lot of people who grow up and uh, as part of a religious group, which then they reject, and you get this really extreme, like they go for the hardest core atheists. Like I even remember when I first really started questioning, I was brought up a Hindu, although not particularly, my parents aren't super religious or anything. But when I first started questioning it, as I started to be like, oh, it's not really for me, which actually... Maybe it's changed a bit now. Um, then it's just this rebellion to the one group I really want to be part of and matters to me is to go as far away as possible um, uh, from the group I was in. But certainly in, in other contexts, particularly in some contexts where you're more pushed out of the group rather than voluntarily leaving it, um, then, yeah, you try, maybe try and find the next best thing. Yeah, I think it really depends on how long that um, discontentment festers. Yeah. Where you get also some people with political opinions doing drastic shifts. Um, and I think it really depends on how many how many beliefs you sort of start maintaining that become incongruent with yeah. that group. If all of a sudden you reach a tipping point and you have you accept that you have so many beliefs that are incongruent with the group, you might shift to the radical opposite. But if it's some, you, there's also ways in which you can kind of get a gradual change, a gradual drift away from a religion mm. or towards a religion and vice versa with any yeah. uh, political yeah. affiliation. For sure. Um, but yeah, that, there's an interesting sort of thing. Uh, because you study hunters and gatherers um, societies, do you, do you think there's a difference in the type of identities we maintain in this sort of fully integrated globalist sort of society uh, versus the ones in hunter-gatherer. I mean, we have we maintain so much. I mean, every time I walk down the street, I, I've curated myself, my physical appearance to such a high degree, and I've curated my social opinions to such a high degree. Uh, is there, there, to me, there must be some kind of drastic difference between the complexity of the identities, right? I think it might be actually what we started with, which is the degree to which in identity does happen, what level it does happen at. Now, of course, it's happening at these different levels. But what you're describing, and I think what goes on a lot more in our society, yes, we want to feel like part of some larger group, and that feeds into our own identity too. But identity can be this very individual thing about me and how I specifically as an individual fit in to different groups that may exist, but it's about my place in them. And I think the concept of separateness can be quite different in other cultures 
where identity really is about you all being part of this same thing. And when you think about ritual, which it doesn't matter whether you're looking at football fans, fraternities, religious rituals, songs and hunter-gatherer societies. I mean, what they tend, the the unique ingredients which seem to turn up time and time again is synchrony, right? Movement in synchrony or chanting in synchrony. And the physiological effects of that are now well established. You know, cortisol levels reduce, oxytocin levels go up. Um, Merging of the self and other starts to happen. And I you guys probably know more about this than I do, but there are various tests they use to try and sort of measure the degree to which one feels distinct from their group or I don't even know what the word is, or merged with their group. Um, and the degree to which your self-esteem is tied in with the the quality of your group or your group standing versus you as an individual or your comparison with other people as a group, all of this synchrony seems to be, you know, pushing one's identity to happen more at the level of the group than the level of themselves. And I think about the rituals you see in many small-scale societies. In, in With the Bayaka, they have all these Masana songs and, and dances where the forest spirits come, but people are singing in synchrony and moving in synchrony. And you can have Miyaya where this is going on all night long. And if you do this for like 13 hours in a row, you sort of enter a slightly different state of consciousness. And there really is this profound level of uh, of social bonding with others and a sense of, yeah, you, that's sort of the meditative state is often about removing identification with the self and that sort of happens when you're doing this repetitive i mean tantric meditation is sort of that you're like Mm -hmm. chanting and chanting and that's even yourself that by chanting and chanting repetitively you sort of slightly lose your sense of self and and some automatic state and then when you're doing that with other people it's sort of i actually had a thought about this and this is probably i know absolutely nothing about neuroscience or virtually nothing but i was thinking Part of the reason I know this is my hand, right, is that I put it down and now I'm getting, so I send a motor control and I'm getting visual feedback that my hands move down. I'm getting auditory feedback. So that's to some degree, I believe, part of the process of me knowing this is my hand because there's a correspondence between the external stimuli and the motor command I've given. And then I was thinking, well, maybe if you're moving in synchrony with everyone and we're all doing this in synchrony, I'm sort of doing this motor command, but then I'm also getting the visual and auditory feedback from what you guys are doing too. And somehow maybe that's merging my sense of, you know, I get the sense that this is my arm because I'm getting the feedback in synchrony with my motor commands. And I don't know, maybe some part of the effective and social responses to moving in synchrony is related to that in some way. And I'm sure a neuroscientist might be like, that's complete rubbish. But maybe there's something in that, that I'm getting external feedback of your movement to my motor commands. Uh, I've got two things for you. One is anecdotal. The other one is uh, scientific. (laughs) Sure. 
Oh, first, um, the the thing you're talking about with uh, the measure of the individual as being part of a group is is prototypicality. Okay. So that's actually the measure used to say, okay, how much do I feel I am part of the group, and how much does the group feel I am actually part of them? And that's a measure that's used, and then uh, things like stress levels and anxiety levels are measured against um, one's prototypicality. So um, the threat of atypicality and ostracism are sort of uh, synonyms in this sense. But there isn't what you're describing more about to what degree do I feel I'm integrated and embedded within the group, like as opposed to the sense that I am the group. I mean, I don't know if I'm explaining this well or maybe I've misunderstood it, but it, isn't there a, a concept of the degree to which my identity sort of becomes the group as well, like my sense of separation from the group Something starts? Something more related to joint action kind of research? So maybe you know what I mean, like playing a song together and then uh, being able to um, to capture that missed note on the piano when you're playing at the same time and you kind of okay, I have to correct that mm. because right, I am in the same kind of uh, brainwave. Yes, it's like blurring a blurring of the lines. Yeah, is the, the yeah the I see I see jointness or um, so that makes sense with the med. So you're 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 following up with the with the meditation sort of as like a full blurring of the lines and practices that we might do that sort of enhance this blurring of and then you're doing with my all agency these other in the people moment. Yeah, as well. yeah. Um, so there there's so with the with the physical body the interesting thing is it's not just a a motor um function that goes in in one direction we actually send a forward copy and a backward copy. So we have these effort signals that go backwards. So as I speak um the the fact that I'm speaking there, there are so many things going on. One is I'm actually producing the speech. And the other thing is that to other parts uh, of my brain, there are um, copies of the signal sent and it almost uh, like reduces the noise. So as I move my hand, there's both the, the signal to move my hand and the signal saying that's your hand moving. And if that signal goes, you actually have disorders where the efferents, uh, the whole uh, efferent system collapses and the moving of the hand will, uh, won't be recognized right and so that's a very interesting sort of phenomenon yeah. in cognitive science we can call that an activism right? yeah yeah I, yeah yeah i suppose you can call it an activism it when that breaks down if that disintegrates you've lost your inaction and that, that's a really interesting thing mm -hmm. but it's wait I, sorry how is that experienced then when that happens oh i i wouldn't be wrecking my yeah i wouldn't be recognizing my hand so um you you get something similar um in Maybe this is a different tangent, but in, in something like a split brain experiment, you can get something where there's an action performed yeah. and it's not recognized. Yeah. So the when you cut the corpus callosum, you're losing the efferent signals to the other side. Yeah. Um, so you get this inability to recognize your own motor function because the efferent copies are not being sent. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting thing when you overload, when you you have this uh, this theory of cognitive load, the amount of stimuli you can process at a given time where people feel overwhelmed they stop taking in or they stop processing the stimuli. And I think there's an interesting point where you reach just before that, where you can get into something like a, this group kind of state, like a drum circle, mm -hmm. like dancing around a fire, uh, like a religious ritual, um, which I think <coughs> Hinduism probably does more intensely, mm. uh, more powerfully than anybody else because there's so much sensation all at once. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I, there, I think there's something to that where you have to almost suspend 
your ability to process every facet of your environment, which we are, want to do at every moment. You have to kind of suppress some of that because you're overloaded with so much and you sort of lose yourself in, in quotes and right. you sort of become part of the moment. Yeah, yeah. When you're speaking, there's always so many things. that. Just, I mean, what you were describing almost, uh, it's not quite the same process, but it almost, it's like the inverse of phantom limbs. You know about phantom limbs? Yeah. Where, yeah. Um, there you've got, you think of something is yourself and your own and it doesn't even exist. Um, but what were you saying after that now? Yes, that over, it just reminded me of group you know, this sense of being overloaded and how it relates to groups. One of the things that can actually drive the formation of groups, as I say, I think sociality, the most common common denominator in what drives its evolution is predation defense. And there are all sorts of, as long as you're not nocturnal, because if you're nocturnal, the best way to avoid predators is to be inconspicuous. So being part of a group isn't great. But if you're diurnal, being part of a group has various advantages. And one of them is called the confusion effect. So if you put a bunch of fish next to some other predator fish, I mean, that only happens with some species, you'd think, okay, if there are three fish and then we put the predator in, the predator's got um, only three fish, so they may get one, they may not. You put in 15 fish and you're like, okay, now the predator's probably going to get one. There's so many of the fish available. But what happens is all the fish have this adaptation where they all just dart in different directions. There's this cognitive overload. Mm -hmm. The predator just can't function. And the more and more fish you put in and the more and more prey there are available, the less able the predator is to actually be successful in getting prey. So these large groups where they have this sort of shared adaptation of just darting around in different directions get this benefit because there you've got sociality and doing everything in a non-synchronous way, having a benefit of uh, predation defense. Yeah, especially if they're reflective and they yes. have all these other mechanisms, yeah. as, as opposed to zebras having stri stripes, yeah. you yeah. have all these different mechanisms to overload and confuse, yeah. reduce, yeah. The, uh, reduce the contrast yeah. um, between individuals, and then all of a sudden you get the swath. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you don't really need uh, any kind of, any form of complex sociality if, that's basically just a group movement yeah. uh, avoiding predation, right? So it's yeah. not, nothing complex in terms of, of no, sociality. No, just, just being, so being, so being, I mean, yes. I being mean, together. I'd, I tend to try and distinguish between a society and an aggregation, mm -hmm. and that can just be an aggregation. Okay. And part of, I mean, one of the main reasons Hamilton's thing was the, the selfish herd, right? You don't actually, mm -hmm. you don't need to have any coordination or anything simply by virtue of being around other individuals, you're less likely to be the one who get the predator takes. Because yeah, I was thinking another thing that actually is beneficial of being around others of other conspecifics and actually can drive to complex sociality is information. Yeah. So yeah. if you are around other conspecifics, you are surrounded by other individuals that can provide you with information that leads you to survive better, yeah. right? Where, yeah. where, is it, where there is food, where to run, where to, well, I don't know, many different things, right, yeah. regarding information. And um, uh, at the other, like, you can easily make the argument of stepping up on this information, right? Starting to use information together, for example, mm. And um, 
you're talking about togetherness or uh, the sense of, of togetherness. It just I don't know why it reminds me of, of um, Hutchings' uh, cognition in the wild. You have to tell me. Okay, so it, it's, it's a, a cognitive ethnography uh, of um, how um, um, people would um, work together to, I don't have the word now, really large boat, <laughs> like um, a boat that is really large. So they, they are navigating together. They are in this cockpit of, of, um, of a boat mm. and they have many different controls and they, they all have a little bit of information of what is going on, where they are, uh, what they have to do. And the information is just flowing between mm. them as if it was just one brain kind of yeah. navigating this, yeah. this really yes, yeah. large boat together. So you can come from, from just like, okay, I have, I have, I have a bunch of conspecific around me. Um, I'm seeing how that guy is getting food. Therefore, I can use the same technique hmm. to get food as well to the point that, okay, let's put those brain together, to, together and uh, let's use a very complex way to, to language to, to, to transfer information between us to make something that is really complex to do. Yeah, yeah. Right. Although it's interesting that social learning and transmission of information is actually restricted you know it's it happens a lot in the animal kingdom but it'd still be a majority of social species where social learning doesn't happen mm. so either it's really cognitive co cognitively costly and as such it doesn't always evolve or the benefit it provides for lots of these species isn't actually that large mm -hmm. so it really i guess depends on what selections pressures they're having whether that investment's actually worth it. I think actually one of the best hypotheses now for variation in primate brain size is based on social learning, right? The, initially it was how complex is their foraging niche. Then it was like how complex are their social groups? But then it's like, well, orangutans don't necessarily have that much of a complex social group. They've still got big brains. And then it's more now thought to be about social learning and that there is this big investment in growing a larger brain because being able to socially learn isn't actually that cheap. But when you can, mm. the benefits are very, very large. That yeah, makes sense. Yeah. You want to take a hook on, on the topic? Uh, if you have anything else to say, otherwise I would, I would like to speak a bit about isolation. No, go ahead. Because um, it's something that, um, that it, you touched upon yesterday and I think is um, sort of a, an interesting application of the work that I, that I also find really interesting, um, sort of the, both the social pressures that drive individuals towards isolation, mm -hmm. um, what, what we find when we see um, extremist ideation or extreme behaviors, uh, how it seems like social pressures end up driving people towards individual, uh, individualism, but then also how we've built um, cultures of individualism, which sort of say, well, you, should, you ought to rely on yourself. Um, and almost the fetishization of doing things on mm -hmm. your own and how that that tends to be quite harmful for individuals. So if you could elaborate a bit on that. Yeah, I think I think it is harmful. I, someone asked a question very related to this yesterday about, because that, that does seem to be something really propagating. And I don't know, again, there's so much echo chambers. I don't know how much other people are exposed to it, but it, it seems to be that I'm exposed to it so much that I imagine this is a real, something really growing exponentially, this obsession with self-reliance. And of course there's value in that, but I do feel a bit of a sense of 
you really commit to that if you want. And I think there's truth in the Eastern philosophies about being detached and cultivate it. You know, you can't control your external world. So if you really cultivate uh, inner equanimity and, uh, and contentment, then great, that works. It's so, and actually I think often what spirituality or the Eastern traditions or whatever we want to call them, what they really are is saying, well, a lot about our nature makes us unhappy. So if you want to be content, you need to just learn to completely overcome what is natural to you. And when you think about what it really is, that being a devout monk or sadhu is, it's it's largely about completely rescinding these uh, natural drives or what's natural to the bonds you forge or whatever. Now, in our culture, this emphasis on self-reliance, I don't know, I've always just, I mean, I haven't thought about it intellectually too much beyond, firstly, the people who I hear it from and the narrative, the way it's discussed, I always find it a bit self-indulgent and almost selfish. Um, I was saying to Angarika yesterday that I've got a friend whose younger sister seems to always just do what she wants. And she's very much like, you know, I don't need to rely on other people. I'll do what I want. And the way her sister, her elder sister, spoke about her as if this was some virtuous thing, like, oh, good for her. She just does what, what she wants. She doesn't rely on anyone. And she doesn't, you know, there was also an element of she doesn't, she does what she wants, even regardless of what how it might impact other people. And I just thought, how can this be starting to be seen as virtuous? I mean, what is virtuous about that, that your own, yes, it's good not to rely entirely of people that you're, well-being is completely dependent on the nature of your relationship with them or what's going on. You never want your contentment to be overly dependent on something out of your control. But it's just been pulled to such an extreme now that people are actually praising someone for just going for what they want regardless of how it affects other people. I mean, that's just selfish, right? Like, Yeah, I feel like it's the... there. There is... I find like a lot of selfishness also about the sort of the seidu and the the monk right. lifestyle. There, right. There's something really masturbatory about it. And right. I, there's some. I feel like the 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 core truth underlying the Eastern religion, with, which I've found that a lot of people miss, was just get over yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. sort of love without the uh, the need to be a burden. The love to be a burden on whom you to whom you give your love. Yeah. And that's sort of an interesting uh, way to balance it. But we. Yeah, we do. We do this very interesting thing because it is so important to to socialize. I mean, one of the things you talked about yesterday, which I was really happy about, was the the impact of solitary confinement, hmm. right? And how m- modern, contemporary solitary confinement really, in in its current form, was was built almost like 170 years ago. I think the first case of contemporary solitary confinement where it's used en masse, no light, no sun for extended period of time was in the United States in like the 1830s or something. They built like the first solitary confinement prison cell. Um, but you have this, it as an, the the most excessive form of torture. You know, f- I think any amount of time is torture. The UN says 15 days. Yeah. Uh, I think any amount of time. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how when you spend so much time alone, uh, you really start to 
unravel in a sense that the way that we've we've built uh, ourselves, how we socialize, but probably even regardless of socialization, the the ability to communicate with others is such an important um, aspect to our ability to function in our environments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with solitary confinement, you mentioned those, you know, that really hardcore, old school, dark, no light, um, thin walls. and But I think now, because, of course, that is really terrible. But the, with the UN torture and, you know, what you see in some really high security prisons is you still, everything's the same. It's yeah. just not interaction with yeah. others. So now you can really isolate that with the torture, it, they're defining solitary confinement everything external is the same, your food's the same, your surroundings the same, your light's the same. But if you get less than an hour of exposure to another human for 15 days in a row, um, then they consider that solitary confinement. And there's a really nice TED talk by someone called Laura Rovner who worked in, she did interviews with inmates of AD, I think it's called, um, ADX Supermax prison in Colorado. It's a high security prison and solitary confinement happens a lot there. And they were talking about, I mean, the, the brain just comes completely dysfunctional. Some of them were talking about how the best part of their day and they just wait there by the door obsessing was when the guard walks across and they would see the shadow of the footsteps because for whatever reason, that was the only analog to some form of social interaction they can get others would you know one of them found a dead fly who became like his best friend and you know really when you deprive someone or of this it's it's bizarre and then i always think of it always raises questions to me i'll be interested to see what you guys think this is some fundamental seemingly fundamental part of the human condition and then how does being an introvert or someone who really wants to be away from others fit into all of this or I mean autism has been a bit misunderstood in this sense but there are I think subtypes of autism if you were to type I mean it's not typed now but where the individuals do have lower social motivation a lot of them do have social motivation and just avoid socializing because they keep getting rejected but the fact that some humans have very low social motivation or avoid it what is it in japan the something beginning with k where they go and isolate themselves completely like they won't leave their their room i can't remember what they're called it's like the way social anxiety manifests there but yeah i, I just find it odd that you do get humans who really want to isolate themselves um when for the majority of humans isolation especially severe isolation causes such profound distress. It, it's just a lot of extreme variability there with having this, this subset. I, I, I do have a personal, like, personal perspective on that, um, but there's also something else I think related to that that I wanted to ask you. I'm going to start with my personal perspective on that and then I follow with the question. It's just, I think I am, I am. I, I think I am a li uh, not so much socially. Uh, I don't rely so much in being uh, surrounded by people all the time or visiting friends uh, often, and that has been kind of m my way to 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 be for a very long time. Maybe I was different on when I was a teenager, but 
but what I perceive from myself is that most of the time I have one or two people that kind of like anchor me yeah for the social uh, interaction that I, yeah. I I I want and I appreciate to have so I don't have to have a lot of social contact but I have people that I kind of yeah functions that anchors that I, I go to I talk yeah. to and that kind of like pieces me like it just gives me peace and that, that's enough and then related to that and with the whole conversation is just like what is the parallel between a physical confine a physical isolation and the actual uh, in the perception of being alone in the terms of like because because of evolutionary psychiatry just thinking about people that even though have social contact feel mm -hmm. isolated so how do you see the parallel now like um, and how that plays out today because um because you might have kind of like a similar physiological yeah. response to that but how 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 that actually get to happen, right? So yeah. that's that's the thing. That how 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 that get to be that you have people around you and you feel alone. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there just must be. I mean, so much of our responses, even physiological ones, are sort of mediated by narratives. Mm. So I think generally in biological systems, we sort of assume right there's some external stimuli which then activates some um, physiological response. Um, and the complete lack of that stimuli can lead to, to a positive or negative response or just, you know, whatever, you shine light on uh, some insect and it runs away, whatever. Um, but then in humans and, you know, may well be in other species, so much of our, we have those processes, of course, and then also there's something about the stories we tell ourselves and our perceptions, which then have real physiological impact, it's sort of maybe related to our, I'm probably a cognitive scientist, shouldn't use this word loosely, but like metacognition, our sort of higher level reflection on our life situation or an interaction or whatever. And then that, yeah, our, effectively our beliefs and our stories induce physiological changes and mm -hmm. psychological changes. And that is a really interesting phenomenon that you're sort of transcending this external to internal change mm -hmm. from internal to internal change, right? You've also got internal beliefs affecting internal. But at its sociological level, how that say? At the sociological level, what, yeah. sorry? What, how, how that happened, that you feel disconnected solitary uh, uh, to the point of feeling the 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 physiological impact of it oh to when that to that point like sociologically how, how did you can be surrounded by people oh feel and alone, still feel uh to the point of feeling the the yeah well i wonder if it's i guess there's there can be a genuine component to it that it, it is not there's i mentioned the structural or functional they often dissect sort of social life into there's a difference between how many people you're around versus how many people would actually help you out or how many people would actually support you and can you rely on and of course it's the qualitative nature that often is found to have a larger effect on health and uh, then the the reality of you know you can you can feel isolated even if you're around hundreds of people every day and at the biological level 
fine, you're getting some response, so you know, you're exposed to all their smells and whatever, and there's some physiological reinforcement, okay, I'm not isolated, but there's also the story of, I don't really trust these people, or I can't mm. rely on them, and that can make you feel alone. And then also there's just the, the sort of cognitive biases that emerge based on other aspects driving your mood state. If you're depressed mm -hmm. for some entirely different reason or some maybe genetic predisposition where even regardless of your life situation, you just keep falling into depression, then you see everything through that negative light. I mean, it's almost just being pessimistic, right? So, you know, if someone who's majorly depressed can make pretty much a terrible story out of anything or someone who in the same way that someone anxious can create can have these responses to something that is quite distinct from reality mm -hmm. um and they're sort of in a physiological state of hypervigilance. you know it's adaptive sometimes to to be on the lookout and to be a bit paranoid rather than optimistic it's good to be a bit paranoid sometimes and then if you're in a slightly dis if that system's a bit dysregulated your physiological response is so far from the reality and in the same way when people are majorly depressed their sort of interpretation and feeling and physiology is so distant from the reality of what's going on and yeah mm -hmm. yeah there's, there's an interesting there's a whole bunch of stuff there's really interesting stuff there um one is you know it's interesting when people feel social anxiety I think that's a marker of our intense sociability, right? Because if you didn't have any drive towards sociability, you'd walk around outside without feeling anything. Yeah. And so that, that's a really interesting point is that we get, we get introversion, but we, what we're seeing, I think, a lot of the time is that people just get a bit exhausted from managing mm -hmm. themselves in social environments. It's not that they necessarily um, prefer themselves or other people. It's just that other people exhaust them a bit much. Yeah. Uh, so that that social component ends up being huge, and even when we do choose to isolate ourselves, there's still a world out there, and I think that that's an important point. Where uh, what you get in prison and in solitary confinement is is a detachment from the world out there. Yeah. You can't be watching TV, scrolling on your phone, and things like that, and communicating still with people, but from afar. Hmm. And I think that that's a really sort of imp important point. Is even the access to to books, material, um, radio, things like that are end up being really important. Podcasts, mm -hmm. um, but the one of the really important things that uh, that you guys brought up is uh, how when you're interacting in a large group, how if you feel as though you're not understood, then you really feel alone. And there's this there's this really Im important disconnect between. Um, how I see myself and how I see myself as being seen in my environment. And if I was to walk around with you guys all day, but you were actively ignoring me, I'd feel incredibly alone. Hmm. Uh, I can be speaking at you, but if you don't pay attention to anything I say, then all of a sudden I'm isolated. Hmm. And I think there's, there's this core aspect to the ability to express and then have that expression be received and acknowledged. Yeah. Uh, you nod, say yes. I give you a poem, you go, yeah. Uh, a song, you listen. I'm not so sure if that's the whole story. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's the center of it. But I'm, I'm interested to hear your, your feedback. I think that, but if you, if you speak and I do not acknowledge, I don't think that that's, I think that that's, um, there's a disconnect there. I have to, even if you are not acknowledging, but I know you are hearing it. 
um, you are behind a door and I hear silence and I'm like, they're listening. I think that that is a really important point to it. And I think that's why people feel so um, relieved when being in something like a therapeutic situation. And I think that's why also art is so therapeutic and expression in, in public groups is so therapeutic. Yeah, no, I was just thinking that uh, perhaps it has to do more with depression for sure and the lenses that you see uh the interactions that you are having but um i can think about people with loveling families you know like um wife or husband children everybody surrounding them they still feel alone you know people that come to you asking for your help or helping you actively mm -hmm. and even though you feel alone yeah, yeah but that, know, that's that still the same thing i think that's still you feel as though your needs are not being met by other people you feel as though you're not understood the i think the loneliness is not sort of purely um i don't think that it, that it's some abstract function that exists on its own i think that it's created because you're like okay well i'm focusing on everybody else nobody is focusing on me or just the perception that that's the case or that you're speaking and being understood i think that in a situation where everybody's caring for each other actively the the likelihood that somebody feels really alone i i think that that would that would be something pathological and not something that everybody shares Yes, that or the not being understood thing. Yes. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. There are it's pathologies, either, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the other really key. That if people are actively providing you... And that's sort of... Yeah, it makes sense to me. I can sort of imagine the depressed teenager. If people are actively being really yeah. supportive to you and want to help you, but it's just like, no, you don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, feeling a disconnect because you feel like your subjective experience is just so different to them. Mm. And even when you're depressed and people really want to help, they're often what people will put, well, that doesn't actually make me feel any better. Yeah, it's great to know, but actually it just makes me feel even more isolated mm. because you they don't understand what I'm yeah. going through. Mm. Um, so there you can feel, again, it's the contradiction of, the more you're around people, then the more isolated you feel because it just reinforces to you mm -hmm. how disconnected you are from one another. Yeah, sometimes the worst thing you can feel is, oh, I understand what you're going through. Right. Because it feels, if you feel like they genuinely don't understand, that can really <laughs> mess with you. Yeah. And it's sort of like, a, you can almost explain it as like a, a fundamental difference in your priors. Like yeah. your, your, your prior beliefs going into a situation are going to, um, impact your perception of people's interactions, the information that you're getting from your environment. If your priors are, and I think that that might be one of the, an interesting descriptive way, at least to describe uh, something like depression is when your priors of your self-worth or your priors of other people understanding you are very low. You, you think that no matter what information comes through, they're weighted very heavily by priors that True. shifted in a direction of, okay, I'm, I'm going to be depressed. In the same way that your very high priors that something is going to go wrong is something uh, almost pathological where you have um, somebody who experiences anxiety or panic attacks, something where it's chronic. It's, it's that they're they have an oversensitive threat detection mechanism mm. that's sort of firing. If you can shift those priors back down, which is you know sort yeah. of the holy grail of anxiety research yeah. and, and, and cure and treatment, um, then you can sort of solve the problem. And you know, I'm, I'm not asserting that this is exactly uh, ontologically the case, but I think that descriptively it offers an interesting model. Yeah. Now that you're talking about priors, you guys will definitely be able to help explain this to me. Uh, completely different note, but the prize got me thinking. So I heard recently 
you know in school when you're learning about how we interact with the environment it's like okay light have different wavelengths and then our rods and cones pick it up and then we create the color and you basically construct this image based on the external stimuli you're exposed to and it's a sort of here are the stimuli build 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 his image so i recently heard that actually the way perception works is bayesian and you've got priors and you hallucinate reality and then you use the stimuli to constantly update your priors and constantly update that hallucination so you're not actually building from the stimuli you're building the hallucination and then using the stimuli to refine it I mean, is that thing, and have I understood yeah, it correctly? I think, I think Ohan can, can go much wider on that than me, for sure. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, this is like the crux of my theoretical work, is the predictive okay. brain model, okay. uh, where the brain is predicting its environment more than it's perceiving its environment. Like, uh, in that, at least, the proportion to which your internal experience is perceived rather than predicted yeah. uh, is shifted in a in a novel direction from from what we thought theoretically earlier, in that... Previously, it was thought that obviously you um, everything is uh, external stimuli. The external stimuli comes in, your brain reconstructs it, and that's yeah. how you navigate your environment. But it doesn't seem like that's accurate. Uh, and there's a growing trend. I'd say it's probably one of the larger camps, uh, if not the largest camp at this point, uh, in uh, perception research in, in cognitive psychology. Uh, something called psychophysics, which I think is a really shitty mm. name that sounds like it's pseudoscience, um, but it's literally the physics of psychology. Okay. Um, but this is looking at, um, yeah, how the how the environment is reconstructed, and it seems like prediction is the best way to count both from the energy budget that the brain actually uses, so how to metabolically account for it, but then also how to account for it from an informational perspective in that there's so much information that processing all of it, hmm. reconstructing it is way more uh, intensive than actually just predicting a state every time yeah. you move and then having that state be adjusted by the internal stimuli. That's how you get um, uh, something like uh, errors of expectation, um, illusions, visual illusions, yeah. uh, how you get say hallucinations on something like psychedelics, there is something like an anticipation. And then what's being brought in hmm. by the degree of uncertainty is the the perception, the perception, the information coming in is, is tainted by the amount of uncertainty in the situation. If I'm in a rush, if I'm running for the bus, I might not see as hmm. much around me. Um, if I'm feeling really anxious, yeah. uh, there's a whole set of work on pattern perception where the more <laughs> uncertain I feel, both in a social sense, which is really interesting, and in a physical sense, they, in both cases, the more patterns I perceive. Right. So the most socially uncertain I am, the more patterns I'm gonna perceive in the social environment. Oh, I feel like these guys don't like me. I, I think they're laughing, and I think they're laughing with each other at me. Hmm. You know, um, In the same sense of, oh, I'm scared and it's dark, and oh, was that a snake? You know, So in the same sense that I can be physically uncertain, I can be socially uncertain, and then I will overpredict. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, you'll, but if you're uncertain, sorry, I missed part of the end and that sounded really interesting. But if you're in an uncertain environment, then your priors shouldn't be as strong, right? And you should rely more on actual perception. You, I mean, isn't that what would be adaptive? <laughs> if that, you don't know what to expect, <laughs> your priors should be more relaxed. It's, it's that you're in a higher anxiety state and what is 
you have your threat detection mechanism is almost like ticked up. Okay, yeah. Of Think course. about it that way. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, yeah, so yeah. this is just there's uncertainty. Let's just yeah, let's err on the yeah, let's err on the side of caution. And so what you overpredict when you're uncertain is not oh, I'm anxious. Everything is probably okay. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, yeah, yeah. It is most likely a snake. I, yeah. Most oh, likely, yeah. it is. It is a snake. That's what Your brain is saying, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather predict an error. Yeah. I'd rather overpredict an error. Yeah. So your your um, signal to noise ratio shifts, mm -hmm. and then you go like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be more sensitive in my threat detection. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, yeah, the, you can account for all of this in sort of hierarchical Bayes model. It's literally, I'm measuring my priors based on the likelihood, um, and then yeah, evidence in in response to data. So it's it's more of a it's more of a um, describing the brain's calculations as a statistics of un of uncertainty, yeah, um, rather than a construction of what is apparent. Yeah. Yes, and that um, it's funny. Initially, I was like, surely that's inefficient to keep adjust, adjust, adjust. But you're right. The amount of information to build a purely perception to construct a perception based on all this information when actually a lot of the time right now you know my external stimuli are staying relatively constant so i can have very strong predictive power already rather than every second build up a new picture build up a new picture it probably is really if i'm understanding correctly it probably is much more efficient to to have this this process you're talking about go on so much more efficient and you even i mean the the amazing thing is even when because you're talking about uh visual perception the the parts of your eye that sense color are sort of right in the center of your vision um outside of the center you get less and less uh of the cones that that construct color mm -hmm. and you're almost reconstructing color based on expectation yeah. Yeah. in the outer uh, sort of in the periphery. And that's really yeah. uh, sort of phenomenal. And the other thing is it takes so much effort. It takes so much energy to actually be aware of something. And that's a really difficult term. It's very hazy. But the ability to, I'd say, maintain and manipulate a symbol, like actively maintain and manipulate the symbol in your environment or information in your environment. Right. I'd say roughly that's a good way to think about awareness. But how do you, what do you mean by manipulate information in your environment? Like maintain the information and then actually use the information. Okay. That's what I mean by manipulate. Like manipulate it internally. So generate information from the information itself. Okay. Sure. So as I'm aware of something, I'm taking in information and then I can generate new information off of whatever I'm aware of. Yeah. I can, okay. whether it's a thought or a thing in my environment. Sure. And that's, obviously the most uh, intensive, like calorically demanding ver aspect of what your brain does right. uh, is the you-ness. You yeah. And it's interesting how in moments when um, there's an immediate threat, that part is almost like bypassed. And people are like, I don't even remember what happened. Yeah, yes. I just did this thing. Yeah, I was yeah. falling down the stairs and I did a move. Yeah. I was gonna crash and I steered away. You know? Rage, blackout, like. Yeah. And yeah. that, that blackout is almost like uh, the, the you as a system being like, oh, that awareness is kind of pesky. Let's get it out of the way. It's going to fuck things up. Like yeah. It always does. Let's just do the thing, and then yeah. we'll turn him back on later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. And I've always thought about this, that this is what's going on. There's like a really intense situation. Where everyone's like, oh, forget that. We don't need to bother with that right now. Let's <laughs> just deal with what we've got to deal with. Um, although, interestingly you get a similar self-report with creativity as well, right? People, 
you know, I've got a friend who's a composer, and I'll be like, oh, wow, like that. And whenever he's been describing it, he's like, yeah, I didn't do that. Like, I don't remember what happened. Like, I didn't do that. And obviously that is when he's most relaxed. So it's it's in contrast, but the self-report sounds very similar to clearly a lot of very directed uh, appropriate action was taken and there's no memory of it. And that's either happening in a really extreme hyper anxious state or it happens in pure relaxation as well, which is which is strange. But yes, in both cases, it's like, let's not bother with thoughts. And because also thought, like especially linguistic thought, and, you know, when we're using the information we get to build more information like you were talking about, when that takes on language, I feel like that's the blocker of creativity, right? It's it's the opposite of flow. It's adding this new layer of interpretation or action. You know, if in I remember when I was a kid, I was always thinking too much from playing sport. And I remember once playing cricket and I got really good at cricket that season. And then I just started thinking, like, how do I bowl? And then I just couldn't do it. I just kept bowling wide. And then I just never could play cricket again because every time I tried to bowl, it was in my head. And, um, yeah, there's certain processes that thinking just gets in the way of or some extra layer of processing or interpretation just gets in the way of. And that can happen at both extremes. Um, yeah, the, it's an interesting thing where uh, my my view on things is that the this what you're referring to is thinking, right? Um, without getting into too yeah. big of a description, thinking is what we think it is, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> uh, be super lazy about it, but I I feel like that inhibition is the core part of that. Yes, yeah. right. In that you carve a space between instinct and action in a very loose sense, uh, very messy terms, but in terms of what you do without thinking about it, yeah. uh, you you cut, you wedge space in between, you're like, okay, I'm gonna inhibit some things. And that's really bad when you need to do things very quickly. So it's really bad for sports. Yeah. It's really bad for performance. Uh, it's really bad for creation. Because what you're doing is overanalyzing. You don't need in that moment to manipulate your environment in, or you don't need to think about yeah. your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You'd rather just do. Yeah, and yeah, I I think that there's a I definitely feel uh, a lot of what you were saying about your friend with composing. When I'm writing uh, a piece, they the poems come out all at once, uh, so it's, it's like an intense moment of creation, yeah. and you really don't want anybody calling the your persona forward in that moment. You don't want anybody, yeah. If I'm writing, I don't want you to be like, hey, Ohan, because I, that'll just like pull me in, and then inhibition comes in. Uh, the that state of like flow is really just uh, suspending the inhibition yeah. in that moment. Yeah, you know? yeah, and animals are sort of there. Well, I there hate, all I the hate, time. Yeah, I hate like <laughs> gr- lumping animals together yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. time. But I remember someone came for an interview once, and we had a primatology position opening, and she was looking at flow in primates, and I was like. I can't remember which, but I was like, aren't primates always in flow? Because isn't flow just that added value, uh, that added layer of thinking? But actually, recently, again, this is really me thinking out loud, and it might be a preposterous idea. I, or maybe it'll be such an obvious idea. Um, Now, the thing that, one of the things that probably pisses me off most in the world is... uh, the just profound underestimation of the social 
and emotional complexity of other species. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, there's only so much you can say. Well, well, there's only so much I can say about your emotional complexity, right? You, what we can assume is their emotional complexity and just this sort of human superiority. I mean, it's just, you know, when people are surprised, like, oh, it's so human-like and uh, whatever. Like, especially, you know, when you think about parental investment and mammals and birds and all the likely emotional underpinnings that that drive this. And I've so I think I'm always good at really recognizing that. But one thing I think I've underestimated for some reason, or perhaps I haven't, is thought. And again, I'm sure you guys can tell me a lot about this, and I really should read more about it. I end up just reading the stuff that I'm writing papers on, and then I never get to actually explore stuff I'm interested in. But, you know, the relationship between language and thought. And because, you know, a chimpanzee doesn't have language, I think I have sort of, without actively and explicitly examining it, assumed that this sort of process wouldn't go on in their brain, that they wake up one morning and they go, oh, aha, not that guy. I'm going to spend a lot of time just over there so that I don't have to interact with him so much. I'm really, he was really annoying me yesterday. Now, they don't have the complex syntax to have that process go on. But does that experience happen without words for them? Because I think I've, I've always respected and recognized the complexity of their inner worlds and emotions and social cognition and intelligence but as I say in the back of my mind I've never explicitly examined it but I've sort of assumed that level of that level of thought let's call it isn't going on but then of course that they plan they're able to future plan we we know that like chimps I'm talking about here they've got social preferences why wouldn't they have that sort of concept or, or that sort of line of reasoning without it being verbalized? How much do you need the language to structure the thought? And do you think animals, if I let's just reduce it down, do you think a chimpanzee ever does that? Sort of gets up, sees Ohan, is like, oh, not that guy. I'm going to hang out around there because I know he doesn't really like it there and then I won't have to deal with his shit today. Do you think a chimp ever has that? <laughs> Yes, it's, it's, Without ju- words. it's just that question, right? It's, it's hard to to see as a bat. Like, yeah. you imagine how how does a bat see? Yeah. Like, you just cannot. But the level of complexity, I think it does exist. I think yeah. it does. Um, just um, perhaps, as you said before, I think maybe we um, like to value a little bit more uh, the way that the humans think. Hmm. So we, we have all of this words to define yeah. the thing so it looks for us complex because we complexify it so it, it, it looks like something that's mm. appealing to us in terms of complexity but um that's just it the rest of what the animals are doing are mm. for me quite equivalent to that yeah. so um i don't know just like augustine fuentes on his book saying that there was i think a chimp or a bonobo that was ostracized by the group and then suddenly when he's taking notes on the field it just like the 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 the, the chimp i think it's a chimp that has been ostracized by the group just lean on him mm-hmm. like suddenly because she, she was like so lonely like you know like and then we use the words right lonely mm-hmm. i don't know if you should use the word but the, what the, the 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 primates feeling over there right 
or I have no doubt they feel lonely and they think, oh, I want a hug, right? Yeah, or or they, like, they feel lonely and they, you see this when they're upset, they'll hug. They they know that mm-hmm. that resolves the problem and have that instinctive. It's more, there's something a bit distinct about the example I gave compared to that though, perhaps because it's, maybe it's just because it involves planning that I had yeah. discounted it, but I don't doubt that chimps yeah. plan all the time. Yeah, like, so, like a barbarian macaque just a, a bartering on Gibraltar, right? You know, yeah, like just to, how, how that could not, like you can describe that in many different kind of ways yeah. for humans. Oh, that person likes that phone. I yeah. w- I'm gonna get that phone, so I'm gonna get that biscuit from yeah. them. You know, you you can you can go on and on yeah. to describe how humans would do the bartering, but uh, the barbarian macaque is doing the same thing. Yeah, at the end. yeah, but the, it is the inner process is of interest whether it whether it's consequential or not doesn't matter but you know again we don't know how low we can reduce consciousness down to in terms of say the animal kingdom but if it if the barbary macaque if if an ant is a robot and you know it feels the wind and has some auto that there's wind and has some automatic response like a robot to move away versus it has a sensation of the wind and then moves so consequentially it's the same but I am interested to know what that inner process is. Was it just some physiological reaction? Now, of course, we don't know that. But I guess what I'm saying is with the Barbary macaque, I would really, I know it's impossible for me to understand what that inner process is. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm sort of asking an impossible question. Um, you, do you, you know the work of Thomas Nagel? What's it like? Yeah, yeah. yeah, What's like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. I think there's a really interesting line of people who've thought about what it's like to have the inner inner sensation in general, and also like the ascription of inner sensation to other people. I think this is like a really good uh, set of work. Like the view from nowhere is a really interesting concept. Hmm. Um, But there's, yeah, that it's almost like, um, do we do we want to dive into uh, trying to understand the inner sensation or do we want to actually describe the behavior? And I don't think that animals are just behavior because I don't think that human cognition is fundamentally different from what other animals do. I think it's a difference of degree rather than a difference yeah. of kind. Um, but I do think it's, I, I guess because uh, I kind of throw my hands up in the air at the fact that it's so unknowable that I, I like descriptive accounts a lot more than sort of internal accounts of like, Mm. okay, well, there's a multi-step goal-oriented action that the macaque is engaging in, right? And that's pretty phenomenal because not not, uh, the complexity of the actions that uh, an agent has to reach to uh, accomplish to achieve a goal uh, are vastly different based on the complexity of the species. Humans can, can achieve incredibly complex goals through a really complicated set of actions. Um, whereas an ant m- might have a much smaller set of steps it can take in order to achieve a particular goal. But is it consciously maintaining the goal in its mind uh, as it does it? Uh, or is it driven towards the behaviors, I think is, a, is an interesting mm-hmm. sort of question. But what uh, I, would, I would feel bad if we didn't touch upon, uh, use this as a segue to something like uh, evolutionary psychiatry. Um, because that you're so knowledgeable in that domain, uh, just to pick your brain a little bit on on what that is and and what your work is centered on, and 
because I, I find it super interesting. Sure. Well, I think I would just categorize mm. evolutionary psychiatry as, well, the fundamental question. I can't remember who I was saying this to yesterday, but the Last fundamental over dinner, yeah, yeah, yeah. question was <laughs> just, um, you know, mental disorders seemingly are here. Why haven't they been eliminated by natural selection? That's the question. And, you know, in some cases that doesn't even make sense as a question, but that's your starting point as a question. Now, some people, you know, and this isn't helped by the sort of popular media articles, automatically translate the premise of that question to, oh, well, mental illnesses must have some benefit, right? So that's definitely not what we're saying. Then the next step is, oh, this is a mismatch sort of stuff I talked about yesterday. Like we have some psychological adaptations which are adapted to a given environmental context or set of situations and now we're in other situations and they're no longer adaptive. And I do think we rely on that too much. I mean, that's a real phenomenon. I'm interested in it, especially because I work with hunter-gatherers. But evolutionary psychiatry has a lot more to offer than that. Um, so I'll give you an example, which I think is cool. Schizophrenia, right? It's all... Okay, some people will be like, oh, well, schizophrenia, maybe being psychotic meant you were more likely to be a shaman and have high fitness or whatever. Okay, sure, that, that may well be the case, but let's just put that aside for a second. In many contexts, and I'm sure many contexts throughout history, being psychotic is probably not very good. It certainly can cause a lot of distress and maybe you'll be ostracized. And certainly, as far as historical records go back, um, like written accounts, you know, in most places, it's going to lead to, there's a lot, uh, massively reduced chance you actually get married and have a family and stuff. It's not fitness enhancing, right? Then we also know there is a strong genetic component to schizophrenia. It's one of the most heritable mental illnesses so there you've got this really fundamental paradox right you've got something which has a genetic basis and reduces fitness this is the ideal sort of manifestation of that question how can it persist that's a paradox now one of the answers to this i think is schizophrenia is highly polygenic so there are hundreds thousands maybe of genes which can have some minor incremental risk increase your risk incrementally What's even more strange is if you look at genetic studies, a bunch of these risk alleles actually have signatures that they've undergone positive selection. But because it's so polygenic, these genes on their own may provide advantages. Like there seems to be the case that people with certain risk alleles for schizophrenia are more creative or better with language use or problem solve in a slightly different way that could be useful in certain contexts. So you've got these genes and some of them are actually pretty helpful on their own. But if you happen to have that unlucky mix of having too many of them or the wrong combination of them, then it can have a pathological consequence. So this is one way theory of mind is actually a good one, right? So theory of mind is so important in human and primate social evolution generally and alleles, genetic predispositions that enhance your ability to interpret others' mind states or pay attention to other people's mind states would be useful. But what if you just had too many of them? 
Randolph Nessie talks about the cliff edge. You know, it's great to be paying attention to other people's mental states and interpreting them. But if you do, if you have too many of these genes which happen to contribute to that, you're going to start hyperinterpreting and get paranoid schizophrenia, right? So you're you're uh, ascribing intention when it's not even there. So this is a sort of explanation how we can resolve that paradox. We can see that these risk alleles have on their own or in small combinations uh, or the right combinations have positive effects so they could persist or even become more prevalent in a population. But then if you it also allows for that vulnerability to be there because some people have the wrong combinations or too many. And what could make that worse is assortative mating. So I'm doing a study at the moment where basically I'm seeing if people who reproduce together tend to have similar cognitive styles mm. with respect to certain traits that we could broadly see as perhaps related to schizophrenia or paranoid schizophrenia. So like agency detection, um, ascribing agency. So we've got these like, it's a biological motion detection task you're in a cognitive science institute you'll know all of it like they're moving dots and then sometimes there's a human figure actually embedded sometimes they're not and you see whether they ascribe the human figure or not or whether they make false positive or false negative errors auditory tasks where it's white noise and sometimes we embed voices and we see whether they hear the voices um emotion recognition tasks do they not only correctly ascribe emotions but how likely are they to ascribe falsely ascribed threat um, and again all of these things can be useful and sometimes making some false false positive errors can be useful or being more creative can be useful but if your parents both have loads of these alleles and you're sort of inheriting dispositions towards always ascribing agency or always inscribing intention or being having way too much threat detection then maybe that can become pathological um so yes, I've rambled on. A no, bit that's there, amazing. It's super and, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super interesting. And we're running out of time, so I'm going to ask you for two more things. Um, one is I'm going to give a rough paraphrasing of something you said yesterday, which I think is really important, and then you correct that. Um, and then uh, I'm going to ask you to speak about one more thing. But um, one is that you're working on maladaptivity, and I love how you started the talk yesterday, which was um, you work on maladaptivity, and that's a really important thing to study. But also, it's really important not to turn everything into maladaptivity. Yeah. So it, you you really have to have an understanding of like, yeah, we're we're doing certain things that we haven't evolved well to deal with. But that's also not an explanation of everything human beings do, and also everything human beings suffer through. So you can correct that. And then I, uh, one thing I also want you to lead into, and then we can we'll have to cut it off, is you're doing some amazing work with motherhood and uh, NHS, just in terms of. Um, how people perceive motherhood and the allo parenting styles and how important it is to put that put put parenting in the context of how humans uh began socializing and began parenting uh, probably yeah. um so yeah please uh, just uh, ending note yeah. from my side as well just yes uh, it starts to stress me out how mismatch is used as a joker card <laughs> Most yeah of yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah exactly that's the like, thing okay, yeah is a mismatch again so yeah you, yeah so i think i touched on that a moment ago when talking about evolutionary psychiatry, the first misinterpretation is, oh, we're saying all mental disorders are adaptive. And then the next thing is, yes, I do think mismatch sometimes occur, but it's just become like, oh, everything's mismatch, you know? And let's just, it's the default. It's become a null hypothesis. Like, oh, well, if we don't know what it is, it's a mismatch. Yes. And that's really tiresome. And 
And actually, some of the things I discussed yesterday, if I really were to go into it, I wouldn't even call that evolutionary mismatch. That term, I'm writing a paper on many different things which people call evolutionary mismatch and maybe haven't even unpacked that they're talking about different things. But yes, I think there's such an over-reliance on mismatch. And then the degree to which that's entered public discourse is just insane. And when mismatch explanations are given, not only do we over-rely on them, they're predicated on assumptions about the type of lifestyles we are adapted to that are completely at odds with genetic, archaeological and anthropological evidence of how we reconstruct past environments. So, you know, they're often based around ideas of really extreme dominance hierarchies or really extreme polygamy or polygyny, um, patriarchy, all of these things that are completely at odds with what we think is the case of how ancestral societies lived. Of course, there was so much variation, but it certainly doesn't fit the normative model. So that's also frustrating. But I'm with you on that. Um, that was also your first question, right? To a yes. large degree. Yes, we shouldn't yeah, always go on, on mismatch. But um, then the the work that you're doing with alloparenting and uh, putting that in a contemporary context. Yeah, so I think... Also, I mean, one of the objections, not Mm. objections, but questions people would have about evolutionary psychiatry is, okay, maybe it's interesting, but is there any usefulness? I think there is. And I won't go into, I mean, we probably don't have time to go into why. But what I, I'll just say one of the uses which is related to your question is that I think it can have a therapeutic value in and of itself. The classic example being what we've spoken about, this smoke detector principle, principle that it's better to be you know, just explaining to a patient that it's better to make a false positive error and this would have been helpful over our evolutionary history. Generally, it's less costly to think there's some danger. You wouldn't design a smoke alarm to be an optimist. You'd design it to be paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that seems, that reframing seems to offer therapeutic value. And then the work we're doing with the NHS is trying to combat these narratives which actually have evolutionary undertones to them that what's natural is that women have this maternal instinct and therefore they know exactly how to look after kids straight away they should be able to handle it and manage it by themselves and also one of the sort of misinterpretations or at least extrapolations that's come out of attachment theory is the idea of a primary caregiver, that the child becomes attached to one primary caregiver. And that now people are, a lot of people and a lot of attachment theorists don't even think that's the case, but some would have said that, and sometimes it's been extrapolated outside of attachment theorists and been interpreted in that way, because the concept of primary caregiver, which does exist, was sort of overinterpreted. So we've got these narratives around the idea that women mothers are the primary caregiver they should be knowing what to do they've got their maternal instinct they should be able to manage alone that's what makes you a woman to some degree in some circles they would you know certainly in in certain cultures if you if you can't manage as a mother you wouldn't even be uh, your your womanhood would be questioned um so we what the psychiatrists i work with report a lot is that What's really common is you get mothers with postnatal depression 
who feel very guilty. They think something's wrong with them. Uh, they think they're really bad parents. They're ashamed and may have taken a long time to seek help in the first place because they're too embarrassed and they think something's wrong with them. So we are working, and we've just started this project. We haven't even done the focus groups yet. We've got through the permissions stages now, more or less, uh, and got the team together. Um, we're going to work and run these focus groups with mothers who have had postnatal depression and ideally who have had the expressed these sort of symptoms or these narratives of feeling guilty and that they were inadequate. And we're going to show them some of the research, both the theoretical work on how important collaboration in child rearing has been in our evolutionary history, how much, um, just some of the data on how many people are involved in caregiving, some ethnographic examples and pictures, and work with them to work out what information do they think would be useful and help combat those narratives for women who are feeling guilty or ashamed or too embarrassed to seek help or like something's wrong with them and build a sort of information sheet or leaflet or pamphlet which we can then give to either new mothers or mothers who are going to this NHS trust to the perinatal psychiatry team and then eventually we test whether there are any therapeutic benefits to this um, and we'll see see how it goes that's amazing cool. uh, i love that you're able to to take the research and and uh also apply it i think that's uh sort of the holy grail of, of academic work so i, I really appreciate that you're that you're doing that cheers thanks uh, dude we could yeah i, th yeah. I feel like we could talk forever um yeah. but <laughs> yeah there's so many things about yeah yeah we, i have to talk to you again sometime because yeah. there are things that i sort of intuitively feel you guys will have a lot of opinions on which i'm just starting to explore now particularly the nature of the self and the idea of, uh, you know, there's no drive when we pop in, like every so often we pop in the sense of, oh, I'm doing this and it, it creates a stable sense of self. And anyway, for another time. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, thank I you so like, much. I, I would like to, to repeat that uh, at some point again. <laughs> yeah. Have another talk with you because that was great. Have you yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you guys too. Yeah, thank you so much, Nico. Thank you. Cheers.